Welcome to Outside the Box, the official podcast here at thefeed.com. This is John Franklin, and I also have Brandon Dykstrahouse here with me. Today we're visiting with Kevin Sprouse. Hi, Kevin. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, John. Kevin is a sports medicine physician at Podium Sports Medicine in Knoxville, Tennessee, as well as the team doctor for the Cannondale Draypack Pro Cycling team. Kevin has been a contributing writer for us here at The Feed um, and recently finished a piece for us about training at altitude. He's also written about how a Tour de France rider eats throughout the tour, how BCAAs can make you stronger, the science of muscle cramps, and how to train for the beer mile. You can find all those articles on The Feed's blog. Uh, Kevin, tell us about how you work with athletes at your practice in Knoxville. Sure. So, um, like you said, I'm at, at Podium Sports Medicine in Knoxville, and I started the practice um, really with an interest in sports performance. Uh, my undergraduate studies were in exercise science, sports science, and when I went through my medical training, wanted to bring that into the sports medicine realm. It seems like it would be a, a, an obvious fit, but uh, in the U.S., there's not as much performance. Uh, that comes into sports medicine um, that's a little bit more common in Europe. And so in establishing my practice, I wanted to, to blend the performance aspect with the, with the medical aspect um, in a way that would benefit both professional and elite athletes, but also novice folks and just anybody who's interested in, in living a healthier, active lifestyle. It seems like that's kind of a new area that, you know, even recreational athletes are starting to pay attention to performance. And there's so many new apps out there that allow you to get into, you know, really nitty gritty detail. There's, you know, blood sampling you can do from home um, to get a better sense for, for what your blood is showing you in terms of your nutrition and what you may be lacking. Have you, how have you found that that trend um, in terms of your business? Uh, I think you're definitely right. There's more and more tools, uh, which also means more and more noise. So you can gather a lot of data, but not all of it is, is useful. And so what, what I try to do is bring to the patient some context. Uh, so whether it's data that we gather in the practice, uh, doing VO2 max and lactate testing, looking at glycogen storage, uh, looking at blood tests, you know, just laboratory tests, um, or if the patient comes to me with training files or uh, lab data that they've gathered from their primary care doc or on their own, because you can do a lot of it online now. You know, I, I try to bring some context to that and, and interpret it in kind of an evidence-based way, um, which is lacking in a lot of the, the online sites. You can get lots of info, but then you don't know what to do with it. Makes a lot of sense. Expanding on that, when you're, when you're working with athletes and you're giving them more context into some of that data, what have you found to be the one area of health that is most commonly overlooked uh, in athletes, whether they're um, recreational or professional? I would say it's probably the same between recreational and professional. Um, and it's it, it may come as a surprise, but the basics are what's overlooked. So we've got all this information. We've got, you know, people know their 30-second power on the bike and they know their exact uh, best transition time uh, for a given triathlon, uh, but but if you ask them, you know, their how much they slept the night before, or just 
simple things about nutrition and and the big picture, uh, it's often lost. And so being able to step back and not focus on the minutia and what's been famously called you know, marginal gains, uh, but step back and look at those things where you can get a lot of bang for your buck by paying attention to very important concepts. Tell us about some of those concepts where they're the most overlooked, but there's the most kind of opportunity to improve performance. Yeah, it's the kind of the high yield areas, we call it. Um, you put put a little bit of uh, effort into something and you get a lot back out of it. Um, nutrition is key. And I'm not just saying this because it's the Feeds podcast, right? It's This is something that a lot of athletes think they understand well. Um, and and then they either there's there's either either a lack of understanding that is not appreciated by the athlete or there's maybe some understanding but a lack of implementation and so as athletes and, and I'll count myself in that although I'm not very competitive but I understand that you know I'd much rather be on my bike or running for an extra hour or two a week if I could squeeze it in um, as opposed to spending that time and you know maybe spending it in the grocery store or you know, planning out my meals or doing some of those things that are a little more rote and perhaps boring and less less easy to draw um, draw direct correlation with performance because we've been trained that you know if we the, the more we train the faster we go but stepping away from that and and making diet very important um, or, or recognizing its importance I think is key uh, the other thing that goes along with that is rest and adaptation. Uh, a lot of athletes, again, from, from novice to pro, are not very good at taking the time to step back, allow the body to adapt to the training load. So all that time you've spent training, you've got to rest, recover, allow for that adaptation. Um, otherwise, you just beat yourself down rather than getting stronger and faster. That makes a lot of sense. How does that fit in um when you you work with um, a lot of pro cyclists on the on the pro tour with the Cannondale team, um, when you're talking about a race that's multiple weeks and huge mileage, and you know you're never really going to recover as much as you want to, what are some of the what are some of the things you recommend to those riders in order to make sure that they are maximizing? their recovery in the relatively short window until the next day when they're back on the bike? Yeah, stage racing is kind of a special animal in that regard. Um, It's one of the few times where you've got to go uh, all out day after day after day. Um, We're really fortunate that on the Cannondale Dray Pack team, we've got a nutritionist, we've got fantastic chefs. Um, The guys have a lot of resources to help with this. and again, with that idea of looking, you know, away from the marginal gains and more toward um, the big picture, the first thing to look at is the diet, is the food. It's not not necessarily the supplements, but it's the it's it's the meals that you can get in. Um, and so, being able to have fresh, uh, you know, n- non-processed uh, foods that are easy to digest, very um, nutritionally dense. That's that's the best thing that you can do from a for a nutritional recovery standpoint. Um, sleep is huge for recovery too. To go back to that idea of rest and adaptation, 
Um, those are the two things that we really try to hammer home after, after every stage is appropriate food, healthy food, lots of nutrients, um, and then making sure they are able to get to bed, fall asleep, stay asleep, have an environment that's conducive to sleep so that they have the, uh, the, the stuff that they need overnight from the diet and then the time for their body to, to uh, recover and adapt to that training. Yeah. So what are some of the things you recommend for, for sleep? Like when you're working with, with a rider in the Tour de France, um, to try to make sure they're, they're falling asleep quickly and staying asleep. Yeah. It can be really hard when you're, um, when these riders are all amped up from a, from a, a big day of racing. And that was one of the things that came as a surprise to me when I first started working in pro cycling, I guess about eight years ago or so. Um, I mean, my thought was that God, they're going to be exhausted at the end of the day and probably just fall right asleep. Um, but what really happens is their their metabolism is so turned up, and maybe it was a sprint stage, and they took a caffeine gel, you know, at four thirty or five o'clock in the afternoon um, toward the end of that race. And, and so it's often the case that sleep is really hard to come by. We try on on the Cannondale Dray Pack team to really focus on what's called sleep hygiene. So uh, we look at things like making sure the riders have a, a very dark environment to sleep in, um, making sure that uh, it's as cool as possible, which sounds sounds like it should be simple, but a lot of the hotels that we uh, go to in Europe during races don't have air conditioning. And mm. so uh, this year we started traveling with something called a chili pad. It's a, a mattress topper that circulates cold water. Um, so they can put it on their bed and, and be cooled in that way, because um, it's really hard to sleep when you're when you're hot. Um, that's one of the most uncomfortable things. So this the the chili pad has been a nice addition, um, and then focusing on on their exposure to light before bed. Um, we've all started to hear, I think, about you know blue light and its emission from uh, everything from your cell phone to to iPads and, and laptops. And one of the things the riders like to do is after they get their massage, they sit in their bed and they prop their feet up and they watch movies and they, they FaceTime or Skype with, with, you know, relatives and friends. And so there it's, it's screen time. Um, and that's a lot of blue light, which uh, decreases melatonin production and makes it harder to fall asleep. Uh, so one of the team sponsors, Pac, uh, a couple years ago came came to the team with some some orange lenses, some blue blocking glasses. Uh, I guess it was the tour two years ago. Um, and they started using those, and the guys like them a lot and say that they, they work well and there's good evidence for them. Uh, so really, it's not a, a supplement or a medication to help them fall asleep. It's creating the right environment uh, to help them fall asleep. Sleep hygiene, I think there's a, an opportunity for a... Uh a web mini series or a, a blog with that name. Yeah, absolutely. I guess, you know, you've told us about some nutrition tips. You've talked about sleep, you know, you've, you've worked pretty closely with a lot of these top riders in the world. What are some other qualities that you've seen that some of the best riders have? And I guess I'm thinking along the lines of, you know, preparation or, um, things that, that these guys will do before races from a, from a mental perspective or, you know, keeping very 
strict routines, what are what are some of the qualities that you've seen run across some of the best? I think, um, God, it's one of the interesting things is that it's there's a lot of individuality, and so there are, you know, I might have thought prior to getting into this that that you'd see a whole lot of attention to detail and a, a lot of uh, routine that the writers follow. Um, and that's true for some of them, but some of them, um, that I've worked with through the years, I mean, if, if, if we don't keep track of their shoes and helmet for them, nobody's going to. Um, and so it's, it's surprising sometimes the things that, uh, that show up, um, in a writer's kind of their mentality. Um, and some of the things that I would expect to, to lead to success don't always necessarily aren't always necessarily present, but, um, but a real drive, a drive to succeed and kind of a, almost a fearless drive, um, is one that across sports, whether it's cycling or runners I work with triathletes, um, just this intense drive to succeed. Um, and along with that, a, a willingness and an ability to suffer. And so, you know, so, some of these athletes that maybe are not the most detail oriented, um, which seems like it'd be a, a detriment, uh, you then, you know, put somebody like that in, in a position where it really matters and their ability to just suffer is, it, it amazes me. Um, and you think of a race like Perry Roubaix or the tour and, and you can, you can see how, I don't know, have either of you all ever ridden cobbles? <laughs> Excruciating. Right. Yeah. The, the first time I did it, I thought, "Oh, this is this is awesome! It's so such a storied place to ride." And within about thirty seconds, I was fine if I never had to ride cobbles again. <laughs> I mean, it's it's an awful experience. Um, and so for me, I would never make a good pro athlete, uh, a pro cyclist, because I can't put myself in that kind of. Um, discomfort and pain and know that it's going to go on for long periods of time. I guess I'm, I'm, I'm too soft. Um, so I'm really impressed by the way these guys can, uh, really put themselves in a position where they know it's going to hurt and just kind of turn off from that. Um, I actually, when I was in medical school, I had a professor, uh, who had been a tour de France rider years prior. He was a Russian guy. Um, and he was an intensive care specialist and we were talking to him one day and, and his advice for being the best uh, cyclist that you could be was to be able to disconnect your legs from your brain. Um, <laughs> basically make it so that your, your brain has no idea how hard your legs are working and how painful it is. And so you see that in these athletes. Um, the other thing that I think that is pretty common among very successful athletes is a resilience, a physical resilience. Um, things that would wear most people down or cause illness um, or, or injury, you know, they just have a special physiology where, uh, you know, most of us, if we were to do two weeks of the Tour de France, we'd be exhausted and probably sick and we'd be injured. We'd have a an achy knee or, a you know, some sort of problem would pop up and we'd be unable to finish. Um, but kind of the weed out process as athletes come up through 
the lower ranks a lot of times relies on this resilience. You know, can they do this stuff and maintain an immune system that functions properly? Can they do this stuff and and not get injured? Um, and so you end up with a, a a group of athletes that has this resilience that is kind of superhuman. Yeah, that's that's really neat to watch. Kevin, so I have a specific question for you, and you've talked about the mental capacity or resilience that they have. Um, what are you doing as a team doc to measure and monitor the acute and chronic load um, on a day-in and day-out training basis, and how does that impact uh, throughout the season your peaking strategies? Yeah. Um it's I want to I want to go back real quick if I can. I made it I realized I made it sound like these guys are are all lacking attention to detail. And that was not my point. <laughs> a, a lot of them are, are very dialed in and some of the brightest guys uh, uh I know um are actually on the Cannondale Draypack team right now and that's not pandering to them. There there's a couple guys on there that are just brilliant and very detail oriented. My point was that it's not uh, it's not a commonality um, that you might expect. Um, and along with that, that leads into your question, you know, we monitor these guys uh, really a lot based on data they send us because um, I say us as the medical and performance team, you know, the doctors, the trainers, the directors. Um, and, and this goes for athletes I work with outside of the team as well and in other sports. Um, we're really reliant on the data they send us. Um, and that can be through software like Training Peaks. Um, it can be uh, self-reported subjective data. So then, you know, us reaching out to them and them saying, yeah, I'm tired. I'm worn down. I'm, I'm feeling great. The legs feel good. You know, um, that's really important. And it, it seems simple, um, but it's a, a really important piece of the puzzle. Uh, and then there's certain laboratory data that we gather, whether it's performance data in a, in a performance lab, like VO2 max and lactate testing, um, or blood work, you know, simple blood panels, uh, that would be done. Same thing you get done at your doctor's office. Um, and using all that to look at you know, training load, uh, the response to training load physiologically, the response to training load psychologically, and putting together a bigger picture. Um, but we're a little bit reliant, or we're very much reliant on the riders to, to send us that. And you know, as I'm relying on my patients to send me that data, um, without them having that, that attention to detail and getting us um, – those training files or whatever it is we request, uh, it can be really hard. So obviously you have access to um, the training data, both in terms of mileage, intensity, heart rate, power uh, output. Are you having the athletes track sleep data, both in terms of total number of hours and, and when they're falling asleep and when they're waking up? And if so, how are you doing that? Um, I do that with some of my athletes. Um, we we don't right now have uh, collect that routinely on the pro cyclists. Um, you know, some are more more interested and more into that data than others, uh, and, and you see that across the board. You know, all of you that are they're listening that are athletes. Um, 
know where you fall on this spectrum. You're either a data geek like me. I mean, that's kind of part of the job and, and you love seeing all those numbers or you're someone who likes to train by feel and you know, what does that mean? I don't know. I don't know, but it, but it works for some people. Um, and so with regard to sleep, there are some people who follow that really closely. Um, and with some of the athletes I work with, uh, we'll use things like, um, you know, some of the wearable devices. Um, there, there's some that are, uh, that are iPhone based. Um, there are some mattress pads that measure how much you move. Uh, one of the things that I have a few patients using that I've actually started to use myself is a, a ring that you wear. It's called an aura ring. Um, and it measures your, your temperature overnight, your movement, uh, looks at your heart rate. Um, you get a number of variables, uh, and then you kind of wake up to figure out how well you slept. Um, the interesting part is usually you wake up and you know how well you slept. And so, so then it, it's a question of how much of that is useful and, and how much, again, is just noise. Um, but everybody's got, I think, their own propensity to pay attention to that stuff. Right. And I would say it's usually not until after the effect that you realize that the hour or two less of sleep that you got the night before for three successive nights was detrimental or, or, or the reason yes. why the performance lagged. Yeah, the, the, another variable that I've seen that happen with is heart rate variability, um, and you know it's a. I don't know if you're f familiar with the metric, but it's basically looking at how variable your your heart rate beat to beat is. So if, if your heart rate is sixty, you think, oh, well, I'm having one heartbeat every every second, um, but that's not really true. It changes with with neurologic input, with respiratory rate and all sorts of stuff. And you actually want it to be kind of variable. Um, and so I've, I've seen in a number of patients um, that I work with in my practice and also um, professional athletes where they'll, they'll collect this data and it'll, it'll, you know, they'll get some cue that they should maybe take a day easy and they don't and then they get sick or injured. Um, and that has to happen a few times and then they're like, oh, okay, well maybe, maybe I should pay attention to this. <laughs> I'm that guy, Kevin. Yeah. Oh, I am too. I am too. <laughs> so in terms of heart rate variability, there are a number of products out there. First Beat, um, in the app store, there are dozens of different iPhone options. Um, in your experience, what, it, for the product to be useful and effective, can you do it for a minute a morning or do you need to be wearing a product that's tracking you throughout the day or um, where are we at in terms of the technology with, with heart rate variability? I think that there's a lot more conclusions being drawn right now than we have data to support. Um, so with that, uh, it, it's really a matter of kind of having those experiences like we just talked about where you start to see for yourself how it how it works um I, I don't think a minute in the morning is useful um i do think that if you get into the three to five minute range in the morning and do it the same way every morning same time same circumstances then you can start to get some pretty useful data um there is some utility to having longitudinal data throughout the day but again you also start to get more noise and so I, I tend to like the three to five minute morning reading uh, where it's done the same every day and, and you've got a lot of um, standardization to it. 
Um, and then there's the, the question of some of these wearables that you can wear overnight that take take this data and and maybe this you can pull out you know just before you woke up what did it look like and 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 that may be even less kind of affected by the mind starting to race and thinking through your to-do list um so it's not a it's not a perfect metric by any means it's another piece of the puzzle but i do think it's one that is is useful as long as you don't get too much data and 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 too much noise right and the consistency is the most important piece i would imagine yes absolutely so just to jump around on topics a bit here um i'd like to dive into acclimatization both coming from sea level to altitude and going from altitude to sea level and the differences both for endurance and power athletes so um, we typically see athletes that are competing racing or training at altitude um, there's a couple weeks where where they need the body to adjust. Can you touch on exactly what that time frame looks like, or is that more um, specific to the athlete? You mean coming from sea level coming to altitude, right? Yes, correct. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it is specific to the athlete. Uh, there's some some broad generalizations that can be made. Um, and you've probably heard most of them. You know, if, if you can have ten days to a few weeks to to acclimate, um, that's ideal. But from a recreational standpoint, for most of us, you know, even at a high level recreationally, it's pretty hard to take you know three weeks off your job to to go acclimate for a race. And so then there's a, a decent argument for just kind of showing up the day before and doing it. I wouldn't do either without testing it if it's a big race. Because everyone responds differently, and I think there's a lot of components to that. So, what we start to see, um, and what I've seen in doing, uh, you know, having athletes go to altitude and do camps, and, and, and go to altitude to race, uh, go to acclimate, is that everybody responds differently. Um, there are people who are, you know, very quick responders, and they they very quickly are ready to uh, train at a high level. Uh, compete, whatever. And there are those that just take forever to come around. And I don't think that it's necessarily something this, this genetic or that they're kind of destined to, um, although it may be, this is, hear me here. This is not terribly evidence-based. This is more experiential. Um, uh, but I think that there's so many variables involved, uh, you know, such as, as iron status, um, you know, is it is it an athlete who's ferritin level, which is a measure of iron stores? Um, you know, if they go to altitude and that's at thirty, and we'd normally want them to be in the maybe seventy to hundred range, and so they get there and they're deficient in iron, which is what the body uses to to create red blood cells, which is one of the ways that you acclimate to to altitude. If you go there and you're already deficient, you're just going to tank. Um, whereas if you go there and you're primed, you know, you're, you're, you're rested, you're nutritionally, um, ready for the task, then you're going to do much better. And so I think addressing some of those things, uh, in, in preparation to even go to altitude is really important. And it's a piece that's often lost on a lot of people. What is, what are your thoughts on, altitude tents, hypoxicator mass, um, and any of the various supplements that claim that they can raise your, your hemoglobin? 
Um, with regard to altitude tents and really even altitude, um, often we don't see, or the studies show that you don't really see a big jump in the hemoglobin and hematocrit. Those are the, the oxygen, oxygen carrying capacity of the red blood cells, even though you may see a, a improvement in performance. And so there's something else there going on. There's something probably hormonal um, something, uh, you know, interplay with hormones and serum and blood cells. And the, the picture is a little more complicated than we've given it credit for. And so to distill it to something as, as simple as, um, you know, a hematocrit, um, it's probably missing the boat. So when you look at altitude tents, the data for them is not that great. Um, you know, it's, I think, I think there's probably better ways to spend money, although some people get great results. Again, going back to that individuality. But if you look at a at a, a more of a population-based study, you know, across multiple individuals, there's not great argument for altitude tents. And and by the same token, you know, I don't think there's a single supplement that's going to do the job. There may be some things that support you at altitude, um, and those don't need to be anything, you know crazy or high tech. I mean, we're talking iron and B12 and things that support your body's natural processes. Um, so I'm, I'm a little skeptical when it comes to uh, some of those big claims for expensive devices or expensive um, supplements. Uh, but, I, but I do think there's a role you know, for, for proper high quality nutrition for sure. Can you elaborate? What is the science behind coming an athlete that lives and trains at altitude and say they were to fly out to the East Coast um, and do a cycling criterium or a running 5K, something, you know, high speed, high cadence that uh, maybe they're not getting in their normal training and racing living at altitude? Um, yeah, honestly, I don't know of any, any hard science looking real closely at that. Um, I'm sure it exists. It's not nearly as prolific as going the other way uh, up to altitude. Um, but just, again, from experience, it, it tends to be the kind of thing where when you go from altitude, so where you guys live, and you come down to where you know I live in Tennessee, all other things being equal, you've probably got uh, a bit of a bit of an advantage. Um, and and you, know, you whether you'll be faster or not, you know, again, compared to yourself, but, you know, whether you at sea level is faster than you at altitude, it's, it's likely, but there's other things at play. Again, it's that, you know, all of the things being equal, but they rarely are. And so there's, there's heat, there's humidity, there's things that you encounter, um, you know, down here in the lowlands that, uh, that can be just as difficult to adapt to. They're just kind of a different process. So we have uh, one last question for you. We have a couple people out of the office sick, and we all know it's that time of year, the holidays, it's getting colder. A lot of people are getting the flu, getting head colds. What are some tips beyond not picking your nose and you know eating your boogers and washing your hands um, that you can give us on uh, – staying healthy this holiday season. Yeah. Well, don't pick other people's noses. Either. <laughs> uh, hygiene though is key. Hygiene is first and foremost, um, you know, washing hands, the simple things far and away, the best thing you can do. 
um, hydration is really important. So when we're in the winter months, uh, we tend to be in very you know dry environments, uh, whether that's outside or inside the office um, with the the gas heat, artificial heating, um, and we get dehydrated, which means often that our our mucosa, the the lining of the nose and the mouth, the nose in particular, gets dry and cracked, and that's really your first defense against viruses. Um, assuming you've washed your hands and those other things. Um, so staying hydrated and even using like a nasal saline spray can be really helpful in just keeping that, that first line of defense healthy. Um, if the barrier is cracked, then it's a lot easier for those viruses to, to enter in. Uh, and then one of the things that I recommend to all my patients is the use of, or at least checking a vitamin D level. Um, most of us are pretty deficient, especially in the winter months. Um, athletes tend to be particularly uh, deficient, probably for lots of reasons, but it's, it's a very common theme in athletes. Vitamin D is, is something that's um, uh, really important to the immune system. And if you can keep those levels at an appropriate, uh, keep your vitamin D levels appropriately elevated uh, through the winter months and really year-round, but definitely through the winter months, you tend to have a decreased chance of catching viruses and the flu um, this time of year. So I, I'd highly recommend doing that. That's all we have for you. want to say thanks for, for joining us. To our listeners, you can find a lot of Kevin's writing. One of his best ones, I thought, was How Do You Train for the Beer Mile? So you can find that on our blog. And uh, thanks, Kevin. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me.